The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland, where the leaves are turning colors and the ski shops seem to be reopening. This week, our journey starts in China and Italy as I chat with Sharon Lam in Hong Kong and Lisa Yuka in Milan. Both wrote this week about the economics of masks. Sharon's feature on how the widespread adoption of mouth-to-nose coverings has spawned a mini-manufacturing boom was actually one of my favorite pieces that we produced this week. In it, she points out that the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development projects annual personal protective equipment sales will increase by a whopping 200-fold by the end of this year to $166 billion. But as she argues, the market is fraught with fraud, poor quality control, and creates a whole massive environmental problem of its own. Around 75% of coronavirus-related plastic, including masks used for single use, will pour into landfills, rivers, and oceans around the world. We were joined in our chat by Lisa as Italy's government imposed a nationwide outdoor mask mandate with fines of up to 1,000 euros for violators. Finally, I talked with Gina Chan in Palo Alto after a Judiciary Committee in the Democrat-controlled U.S. House of Representatives released a near 500-page report on how to counter what it called anti-competitive behavior by Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Alphabet unit Google. Our conversation followed a live webinar we had just conducted on how competition issues would play out amid the U.S. elections, and among our panelists was one of the key supporters for action in the Congress, Representative Pramila Jayapal. In the meantime, give a listen to this week's Views Room. So masks, masks everywhere. That seems to be the topic for Breaking Views readers this week. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Sharon, in Hong Kong. You wrote a really interesting piece about called Masked Villain, which is basically a feature looking at, I don't know, what's the best way to think of it? The mask economy. And this isn't just about the big picture, which we'll get to in a second with Lisa and Milan, but this is about the micro. This is about the the, the companies um, and others who are who are making money off of this uh, giant rush to for the world to wear masks. Why don't you talk us a little bit through, um, for, at first, why you, what, what got you interested in, in pulling this together for, as a story? Yeah, sure. So um, as you mentioned, the virus has prompted this huge surge in, in mask wearing. And whereas in the past there were traditional companies that were doing it, now you're seeing everyone from, from companies like Chinese car maker BYD to Gap, the U.S. clothing retailer, who are trying to, to cash into this demand. And even some traditional players like 3M, they saw a demand for N95s in particular rise 40 times. There's an increase of 40 times over kind of pre-pandemic levels. They've been doubling production since January and, and have been just turning out these masks. And so yeah. at the same time, it's created a huge opportunity also for entrepreneurs and fraudsters that have piled in, which has led to you know quality problems, price gouging and whatnot. So Well, it's what, one thing that's interesting. You said you even put the number on here. You said, according to the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, that annual mask sales will increase to 200 times to 166 billion in 2020. So. And I assume, one has to assume 2021 ain't gonna be any fewer masks sold. So this is just a huge opportunity, not just for the legit guys, the 3Ms and others. As you say, it's for gougers and the, the, the underground economy as well. Right, definitely. Because of this huge market opportunity, there's there's potential for, for a lot of fraud. Um, you know, you it's relatively easy to set up a business, a simple production line, and then 
It's created or spawned this kind of black market where masks are distributed, some of which are not the kind of authentic ones. I think there were over 6 million masks, for instance, in Hong Kong, which had a kind of a name that were distributed back in March to, to even some government departments there. You also have a really interesting point in there, and maybe you can elaborate on this. You said an industry insider told you something about the early phase of the outbreak, what, what it would take. Why don't you to, yeah. to set up a mask production line? So setting up a, a simple production line could take just around 200,000 uh, US dollars, um, and you could set that up in as little as that's two weeks, so the barrier to entry is is relatively low. Let's let me let's bring in Lisa Yuka in Milan. Um, Lisa, have you got your Louis Vuitton gold-studded face shield for the upcoming mask uh, mandate in Italy? Unfortunately, not yet. But uh, as you know, every luxury brand is now producing masks. So maybe I should uh, pop by Via Monte Napoleone and buy one. I mean, they <laughs> they don't come cheap, I'm afraid, but they're certainly fashionable. But what, so what's going on? Frame it for us a little bit. Wednesday, the Italian government under Conte is basically signing a mandate that says everywhere. Is that right? People might need yeah, to wear masks. Yeah, that is correct. So, I mean, just to take a step back, I mean, you may remember that Italy was the Western country that was hit at the outbreak, you know, I mean, the first, let's say, European country to really experience coronavirus. And and we had a very strict lockdown where masks were mandatory outdoors in, in public transport, I mean, d- during the initial phase. And then rules had been relaxed over the summer. But because we are seeing a resurgence of the cases, so a second wave, the government has decided that there shall be a nationwide mandate to, to wear masks outdoors, with a few exceptions. But let's say in general, if you're walking down the street and there's people around you, you should be wearing a mask or face a, a fine of up to a thousand euros. And this is a cross. So this is not. So I, you know, we you and I, I visited with you in Milan, and people were wearing them obviously on the streets. I've been in Rome. Uh, people are, you know, and, and we've talked about. I think on this podcast before, just the extraordinary compliance across, at least in main, major cities in Italy. Is this going to go right down to the tip of the boot and to Sicily? I mean, is this a nationwide mandate, and and will it be as effective, or be as will people be as compliant as they have been in some of the big cities? The plan is to make it mandatory across the entire country, so including some southern, I mean, including southern Italy, where unfortunately the virus is uh, now showing quite a few cases. I mean, more cases than before in places like Campania, where Naples is, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of compliance, I mean, obviously time will tell, but I must say that already now, as you have noticed when you visited um, Milan, for instance, many people do wear masks outdoor already, probably because in Lombardy, where Milan is, where I live, we really had the the vast majority of the cases. We had half of the national deaths in the region. People were scared into wearing masks in a way. In other places, they might not have been. I guess let's just talk about the economic implications of this, that Goldman earlier in the summer wrote a piece that was quite interesting. I know you cited it in a recent Corona Capital column for us, which basically suggests that there is a huge economic benefit to mask wearing that in in a sense excludes the need to have additional lockdowns, which of course are hugely economically destructive. What's your your take on that? Yes, I mean, obviously, it's all about trade-offs. Lockdowns are obviously, I mean, as the report itself says, the most effective way to 
to eliminate the, I mean, to almost, let's say, eliminate the transmission of the virus, but they have a, a terrible impact on the economy, as we have seen. So the report has been exploring alternatives and, and mask uh, wearing is one. So mask wearing, according to the report, reduces the transmission by 25%, which, you know, is not irrelevant. And, and they've also noted that in places in the US where mask wearing was at its highest, for instance, the Northeast, the infection rate was going down faster. In the South, where mask wearing was not that common, unfortunately, the infection rate at the time of publication was was going hard. So there seems to be really a correlation uh, between mask wearing and the reduction of the infection rate. So why should we introduce a mask mandate? It's a it's a cheapest way to somehow deal with the resurgence of the virus without having to resort to the lockdowns, which are, mm-hmm. you know, obviously depressing the economy. And, and Goldman Sachs estimates that a new lockdown in the US would depress GDP by 5%, which is obviously huge. Yeah, but of course, the, the, the trade-off, as you see, I mean, you've probably seen it, we see it here in Switzerland, other places, and certainly in places like Texas or Florida, there's a sense that you're trading off some sort of personal liberties or freedoms as a result. This is why the thing has become so, I guess, Indeed. Uh, No, I mean, this is, the, this is very politicized, and it's also more of a Western topic in a way, I would say. Uh, I mean, obviously, we have Sharon also on the podcast, I mean, who could help us on this. But, uh, you know, I lived in Hong Kong and already before, you know, COVID came to the forefront, you know, people would wear masks if they had a cold. So, you know, in Asia, there is generally a culture of not opposed to wearing masks. I mean, it's not seen as a limit to personal liberties, but as as a way to prevent others to fall. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like good good manners. I mean, how do you view it, Sharon? And and, and how how have people, how has it shipped? So interesting what Lisa says, and of course you were on the, anyone on an MTR, anywhere up up to a year ago before anyone even knew what COVID was, people always routinely wore masks. And you just assume it's because they have a sniff, the sniffles or a cold and they don't want to give it to people. But how has that shifted? How has the view on masks shifted in Hong Kong? Well, I think because of SARS back in 2003, there's been this kind of routine practice, as Lisa mentioned, where not wearing masks is pretty stigmatized and, you know, you get odd stares if you don't. So it's very much, I guess, ingrained in the culture in a lot of Asian societies. But there's one thing I do do want to add is that even though this might be adopted longer term, um, obviously there's huge demand now, but there's probably going to be another issue that governments and, and countries will have to contend with down the line, and that's a potential glut. So the WHO um, earlier in March said that manufacturing for, for PPE or personal protective equipment needed to increase by 40% to meet global demand. And there was a period of export bans uh, with countries and, and territories saying that they would kind of limit um, exports of, of this uh, PPE, including masks. But speaking to a lot of people in the industry, that frenzy has started to die down. It's easier to get masks now. And we're also at this inflection point where governments are, are now focusing on vaccine development instead of just defending their PPE stockpile. So I think that, you know, Dealing with with the environmental consequences and, and a glut could be the next thing to, to kind of. Well, that's interesting. Uh, let me. Do, I saw in your piece that you said around seventy five percent of coronavirus related plastic 
will pour into landfills, rivers, and oceans. And the way you describe it here, in April, China turned out nearly 1 billion masks a day. And, you know, this stuff is going to end up as garbage somewhere. Yeah. And you're already starting to see that just walking through the city, going to the beaches, the hiking trail in Hong Kong, you see stray masks just being left on the trail. So yes, there's a huge kind of environmental uh, burden that we'll, we'll have to deal with. And it doesn't help that a lot of this waste is petroleum based and uh, isn't easy, very environmentally friendly. Well, good. Thank you guys for um, unmasking this fascinating topic for us, for the views room. Um, stay healthy out there and talk to you soon. See you too. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Gina, so a lot has happened uh, in the tech sector in the last couple of days. You had a pretty astounding report come out of the House Judiciary Committee that basically looked at how uh, the U.S. government might actually break up the big tech companies, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google. Um, and as a result of that, we, we got lucky because you and I were conducting a conversation with uh, uh, some a lobbyist for the industry, Bill Baer, who used to be uh, at the DOJ running antitrust policy, and of course, Representative Pramila Jaipal. Um, just what's your sense of, of how this thing moves forward? Well, it will be interesting because there's definitely bipartisan consensus that big tech is a problem, uh, but there are differences of opinion on how to handle it. So you saw this report come out of Congress, but it was only signed off by the uh, Democrats who are in the majority in the House. The Republicans put out uh, their separate report, um, which agreed with some of the recommendations, but not the most extreme ones, including breaking up the big tech companies. So we'll see how things play out in the November elections, but at the very least, the tech companies can sort of grab onto that disagreement to try to sort of drag this out. But so I think things- Dividing and conquering the, uh, the in, in, in the House the, between the Republicans and the Democrats. Yeah, exactly. But I think the sentiment and the, the mood against the industry is strong enough that it seems like, you know, something's got to give now. They obviously have a lot of other things to think about, including the continued economic fallout from COVID-19. But tech is definitely uh, in their sights. And so if you look at, at how this thing's go, so it's a 480-page document yeah. that's come out. Um, it's the result, as the Congresswoman told us, uh, of 16 months of work. Yes. Um, but of course, we are less than a month away from an election. I mean, is this just sort of like a, they're just throwing this giant pot of spaghetti against the wall uh, to sort of, as part of a, I don't know, an electoral message? Or is this, or do you think that this thing after when we get, we get a new Congress in January, this thing gets real legs? Well, there was definitely a push to get this report out before the November elections, but I think the real work is looking to next year. And this report basically offers a blueprint for the Democrats in particular and to their presidential candidate, Joe Biden, as a marker of where uh, things could go, um, especially if the Democratic Party sweeps Congress and takes over the majority in the Senate as well as the House. And if I look at the report, let's just kind of quickly, the most extreme recommendation in there, or the recommendation or idea, of course, is a kind of like 
breakup in uh, along the lines of what happened with AT&T and Ma Bell, if you remember that. And um, although you probably don't because you were a kid. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it, it, I was barely alive, too. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, what I do know is that over, over the next 20 years, I wrote it. We, we covered M&A deals where they basically patched up Humpty Dumpty into what we now know as AT&T. I mean, it, so is that the most extreme element of this recommendation for this report? Yeah, sort of the structural remedies are definitely the most extreme. Um, they more uh, took a page from banking regulation. Uh, they mentioned the Bank Holding Act um, of, I think, sort of the 1950s uh, that basically said, you know, a bank holding company can acquire a company engaged in non-banking activities. Uh, the chairman of the antitrust subcommittee, David Cicilline of Rhode Island, has also brought up Glass-Steagall, the uh, uh, law that separated um, investment banking from retail banking. So they're interestingly looking at some of the ways that uh, behavior and activities was reined in on Wall Street as sort of a model for the tech industry. Uh, again, whether that those are the more extreme suggestions um, will will remain to be seen, but it at least gives you a sense of how they're thinking about these things. And one of the we, one of the people we had in the panel that we conducted on Wednesday, we had Matt Shears, who's basically a lobbyist for the tech industry. Um, you know, they kept one of the, the and you hear this refrain all the time. Well, this is you know consumers are benefiting and consumers are benefiting, and of course, U.S. antitrust philosophy has pretty much taken the idea of, well, if consumers are benefiting, then what's the big deal? But things seem to be shifting in that idea when it comes to technology, in part by this recognition that actually consumers aren't just benefiting, they are the product, it seems. Yeah, well, it's especially with how their data is used and how it's monetized and, and perhaps sold or, or abused by some of these platforms, uh, that is coming into the thinking of the consumer welfare standard, which has been sort of used for decades now in antitrust law. Um, they're also looking at the quality of service, you know, as these companies get bigger, um, is what they're providing to consumers really up to the standard. They should be given all of these sort of data breaches and, and other um, scandals that have come up. So they are really trying to sort of fit welfare standard into sort of the 21st century. Yeah, very interesting. Well, anyway, Gina, thanks for covering this for us and thanks for pulling together a fantastic panel. We'll make sure that uh, our listeners get a chance to listen to that too. We'll put it on uh, Exchange next week. Sounds great. That's our show for this week. Thanks to my guests and hats off to our producer, Freddie Joyner in New York. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fixes. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Don't forget to tune in next week for another edition of The Views Room. Avita Sen, and stay healthy.